welcome to The Bazaar. It's Friday. You know what time it is. It's the time that you've carved out in your day to listen to The Bazaar. So thank you. I feel profoundly special. My name is Alicia Greck, and I am your host. I am the captain of this ship of madness. Episodes of The Bazaar come out every Friday, but you know that. That's why you're here. Unless you're completely lost. If you are, this is part three of the Manson trilogy that we've been doing on The Bazaar. Last week, we talked about Spawn Ranch and the Manson family. The week before, we talked about Charles Manson's early life. If you haven't listened to part one or part two, maybe back up a little bit and do that now. This week, we're going to be covering the Manson family murders. As with the first two parts, I really owe the inspiration to this little mini-series to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Tarantino film. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's really interesting. Now it's time for your regularly scheduled content warning. The Bazaar contains mature subject matter that some listeners may find offensive or uncomfortable, so listener discretion is advised. Information for today's episode comes from Wikipedia, The Independent, Rolling Stone, and Biography.com. If you need a refresher, where we ended off last, Manson paid several visits to Sharon Tate's residence, looking for Terry Melcher, who was, in fact, renting that same property before. Rudy Altobelli came face-to-face with Manson at the time, another music producer who was not all too happy to see him. I mean, I wouldn't be either. Manson demanded to know where Terry Melcher was, and Altobelli responded with diversion and lies. Manson left that night disappointed. The next day, Rudy Altobelli flew with Sharon Tate to Rome. On May 18th of 1969, Terry Melcher finally crawled out of his proverbial hiding place in Malibu. In hindsight, it was a stupid trip to make, but he visited Spawn Ranch to finally hear Manson and the women of the family sing. Melcher actually arranged a second visit where he brought a friend with him to record, but never ended up actually recording it at all. It's easy to speculate what Manson would have been like during all of this, erratic and desperately grasping onto threats. At the end of the day, he was a cult leader more concerned with self-image and fame than ever keeping his family together. For the third time, he'd been pushed out by the music industry, and he was pissed. All cult leaders are the same to me. They're these megalomaniacs looking for their next power trip. Manson was starting to get desperate, and so was his family. He was most desperate to keep control over the group of teens and young adults that he collected over the years, who were otherwise unstable outcasts. By June of that year, Manson was feeding more of his manifesto to his family. Maybe feeding is a little gentle for what he was doing. He was actually kind of shoving his manifesto down their throats. Manson was telling his family that they might have to show the black population how to begin the events of Helter Skelter, and thus start the race war. Manson tasked family member Tex Watson with obtaining money to stockpile for everybody's safekeeping. Tex Watson defrauded a black drug dealer named Bernard Crow. Crow responded with a violent threat to kill everyone at Spawn Ranch. Oh, how I wish he did in a lot of ways. Manson countered the following month by shooting Crow to death in his Hollywood home. 
Charles Manson saw his own crime as something more important politically than it was. He assumed that Crow was a part of the Black Panther movement. He wasn't, but Manson continued to expect retaliation from them. Certifiably insane, drugged out of his mind, and in need of some good carbs back into his diet, Charles Manson turned his home of Spawn Ranch into a defensive camp. This camp had night patrols and armed guards. A component of success within cults are the lack of sleep that the members get, draining them both physically and psychologically. The Manson family was not only tired, but on edge. And armed. The next victim of the Manson family was Gary Allen Hinman. Hinman was a music teacher and a PhD student at UCLA. At some point, he had befriended a few members of the Manson family, opening up his home to them. For some stupid reason, Manson was under the impression that Hinman was exceptionally wealthy. On July 25th, at Manson's behest, Bobby Boussolet, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins went to Hinman's home to try and convince him to join the family and turn over his money to Manson. Hinman said no, obviously, and he was held hostage in his home for two days. During that time, Manson showed up to participate in the torture and mutilation of Hinman. Then the members continued to write political piggy on the wall in Hinman's own blood. In order to stop any connection of the crime to them, they actually drew Black Panther symbols on the walls so that they would take the fall for something that the Manson family actually did. As much as I make sarcastic remarks about cults and the mentality going on with the Manson family, I do take this seriously. If you want to go out and live in the desert and be in this community as harmful as it is, go for it. But if you want to take that community to the streets and use it to hurt other people, blame other people, these people are just monstrous. This group mentality, brainwashing or not, they are just as dangerous as any other serial killer out there. A lot of people are quick to put the whole blame on Manson. It's easy to do. He is the brain behind all of it. But at the same time, those people involved in the Manson family were just as much as loose of a cannon as he was. The next month, Boussoulet was arrested after he was caught driving Hinman's car. In the car, the police found the murder weapon. Two days after his arrest, Manson told the family that it was now the time for Helter Skelter. Manson directed Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Crenwell to return to Melcher's former home and kill everyone there. Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski were living there, as I'd mentioned before but Polanski was away working on a film he was directing. That night, the family members killed were Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, Jay Sherbrig, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Fryowski, and Stephen Parent. On their way out of the home, Susan Atkins also wrote Pig with Sharon Tate's blood on the front door. The next night, six family members, Leslie Van Houten, Steve Grogan, and the other four from the previous murder, drove out accompanied by Manson himself. Manson gave Linda Kasabian directions that brought them up to 3301 Waverly Drive. This was the home of Leon LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary, who were soon to be the next victims of the Manson family. Located in Los Feliz area in Los Angeles, it was next door to a house that the Manson family had previously visited. According to testimonies later given by members of the family that night, Manson disappeared up the driveway and came back with a plan of attack. 
Manson woke up Leno LaBianca from the couch at gunpoint, and Tex Watson bound his hands. Rosemary was brought into the living room from the bedroom, and both of their heads were covered by pillowcases, bound in place by Tex Watson as well. Manson then left, leaving the others with instructions that the couple could be killed. Tex Watson began stabbing Leno LaBianca with a chrome-plated bayonet. As Rosemary began to fight for her life, Tex Watson then stabbed Rosemary several times. After this final attack, Tex Watson also carved the word war into Leno's abdomen. Rosemary LaBianca was also stabbed to death with a knife from her own kitchen by several members of the Manson family that night. Rosemary LaBianca had been stabbed a total of 41 times, with most of her stab wounds being inflicted after death. While Watson showered in the LaBianca home, other members wrote death to pigs, rise, and helter-skelter on the walls of the home in the blood of the victims. There was a lot of other violence inflicted on these bodies after death, which gets even more gruesome. It's so gruesome that I don't know if I can fully even list it off right now. The Tate murders became national news on August 9th of 1969. Winifred Chapman, the housekeeper, arrived for work that morning to discover the horrible scene. On August 10th, detectives who worked on the Hinman murder case informed the LAPD detectives working on the Tate case about the similarities with the blood on the wall. At that time, authorities didn't figure they were related. The Tate autopsies were underway by the time the LaBianca bodies were yet to be discovered. The LaBianca crime scene was discovered at about 10.30 p.m. the next day. Frank Struthers, Rosemary LaBianca's son from a previous marriage, returned from a camping trip to find his mother and stepfather's home in disarray. He called his older sister and her boyfriend. The boyfriend accompanied them into the home and discovered the bodies. On August 12th of 1969, the LAPD told the press that it had been ruled out any connection between the LaBianca and Tate homicide cases. But, of course, that was short-lived. I'm not someone who likes to judge law enforcement for the sheer detective sex of the departments. It's hard. I mean, it's definitely harder than the TV we see about solving murders. You're chasing down some pretty awful people. But I also can't understand how you couldn't see the connection between these two cases. I guess hindsight 2020. On August 16th, Spawn Ranch was raided and Manson, as well as 25 members of the family, were arrested for auto theft. Weapons were seized, but because the warrant had been done up wrong, the group that was arrested was soon released. Finally, remarkably, a breakthrough happened. While the Tate detectives and the LaBianca team were working separately, the LaBianca team checked with the sheriff's office in mid-October to explore connections. They learned of the Hinman case and of the arrest of a Kitty Lutzinger. She had been arrested a few days earlier with members of the Manson family for car thefts. Following the burning of a earth mover owned by the Death Valley National Monument, a joint task force of National Park Service Rangers and officers from the California Highway Patrol raided Myers and Barker Ranch that still belonged to the Manson family. It was in the second raid that they found stolen dune buggies, which sounds so badass. I would love a dune buggy. I have nowhere to ride it because I live downtown in a city, but I really want a dune buggy. During this raid, they arrested two dozen family members. So, where was Manson when his family was getting arrested? 
Was he defending them? Representing them? No. Their fearless leader was hiding in a cabinet under the bathroom sink. While interviewing and following up leads, LaBianca detectives contacted members of a motorcycle gang about the family at Spawn Ranch. They suggested a link between Manson and the LaBianca murders. Meanwhile, the LAPD was speaking to a dormitory mate of Susan Atkins, a family member of Manson's, who informed them that Atkins was booked for the Hinman murder also. On December 1st of 1969, the LAPD acted on this information and finally went after Manson and the family for the Tate and LaBianca cases. Manson and Atkins were already in custody, luckily. Other members of the Manson family were also collected during this time, such as Watson, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian. Once the key players from the Manson family were apprehended, physical evidence such as fingerprints connecting Krenwinkel and Watson to the crimes were collected. On September 1st, the 22 caliber revolver Watson had been using was found and given to the police by a witness who found it near the Tate residence. In mid-December, the Los Angeles Times published a crime account based on information Susan Atkins gave her lawyer, which was highly incriminating to say the least. Also, in the wild disarray of this case, a local ABC television crew located and recovered bloody clothing discarded by the Tate killers. The knives were also found discarded from the attack. With the overwhelming amount of physical evidence pointing towards the Manson family, the trial came quickly in the following year. The trial started on June 15th of 1970. The prosecution's main witness was Kasabian, who, along with Manson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel, had been charged with seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy to commit murder. You can imagine how the family took Kasabian's betrayal of supporting the prosecution. Not well. Now, physically speaking, Kasabian herself had not participated in the killings and was given immunity for speaking out against the Manson family. Atkins had also been promised a deal in order to not get the death penalty, but she backed out of having a grand jury testimony and the deal was withdrawn. For Van Houten, who had participated in only the LaBianca killings, she was charged with two counts of murder. On Friday, July 24th, after serious misconduct in court leading him to be unallowed to represent himself, surprise, surprise, Manson appeared with an X carved into his forehead. He issued a statement that he was considered inadequate and incompetent to speak for and defend himself, and that he'd exed himself from the establishment's world. OG. Over the following weekend, the female defendants duplicated this mark on their own foreheads, as did most family members within a day or so outside of the trial. The prosecution argued that Helter Skelter was Manson's main motivation for the murders. No one is surprised there. Kasabian testified that Manson had told the family that it was time for Helter Skelter on the night of the LaBianca murders. Manson even considered discarding Rosemary LaBianca's wallet on the street of a black neighborhood. Having obtained the wallet in the LaBianca house, he wanted a quote-unquote black person to pick it up and use the credit cards so that people would think that it was some kind of organized group that killed these people, period. On his direction, Kasabian had hidden it in the women's restroom of a service station near a black area. Manson said, 
I wanted to show Blackie how to do it. <laughs> I can't believe this guy. Like, I can believe this guy because he's insane, but I, I can't believe this guy. Manson had said as the family members drove away after leaving the LaBianca house. Outside of the trial, there were a lot of disruptions. Other family members, who were still fiercely loyal, by the way, loitered near the entrances of the courthouse. When the group established itself in vigil on the sidewalk, some members wore sheathed hunting knives. Sheathed. The word is sheathed, Alicia. Sheathed hunting knives that, although in plain view, were carried legally. Each of them was also identifiable by the X on his or her forehead. Some family members attempted to dissuade witnesses from testifying. Amongst all of the drama and all of the chaos with this case, on November 16th, the prosecution finally rested its case. Three days later, after arguing the standard dismissal motions, the defense stunned the court by resting as well, without calling a single witness. Shouting their disapproval, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten demanded their right to testify. But instead, the next day, Manson testified. Speaking for more than an hour, Manson said, among other things, that, quote, The music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment, he said. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. To be honest with you, I don't ever recall saying, get a knife and change clothes and do what text says. On January 25th, the jury returned guilty verdicts against the four defendants on each of the 27 different counts against them. Midway through the penalty phase, Manson shaved his head and trimmed his beard into a fork. He told the press, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head. Wow. On March 29th of 1971, the jury returned verdicts of death against all four defendants on all counts of their heinous murders. On April 19th of 1971, Judge Older sentenced the four to death. So, I know what it sounds like. It sounds like I'm pretty done with this case. To me, this is open and shut. These people deserve what they got. Like I said, as much as Charles Manson led them towards these events, those four people decided to do it all on their own, regardless if Manson was going to lead them there or not. They had made their minds up, and they killed a lot of people. They did significant damage. On the day the verdicts for the death penalty were returned, news came that the badly decomposed body of Ronald Hughes had been found wedged between two boulders in Ventura County. It was rumored, although never proven, that Hughes was also murdered by the family. If I didn't make it clear, Tex Watson was also apprehended, arrested, and found guilty as well. He also has received the death penalty for his crimes. Additional murder cases were later also connected to Charles Manson and the Manson family. These victims were veteran James L.T. Willett, Lauren Renee Chevelle Willett, and Donald Shorty Shea. On September 5th of 1975, the leftover members of the family didn't desert the cult or, you know, get arrested or mysteriously disappear. They all rocketed back to attention. Member Squeaky Frum attempted to assassinate the U.S. President Gerald Ford. The attempt took place in Sacramento, to which she and Manson follower Sandra Good had moved to be near to Manson when he was incarcerated. In December of 1987, Frum, 
serving a life sentence for the assassination attempt, escaped briefly from the federal prison camp in West Virginia. She was trying to meet Manson, who she had heard had testicular cancer, and she was apprehended within days. But she was eventually released on parole from the Federal Medical Center in Carswell on, on August 14, 2009. It was really hard for me to say 2009 there. Let's bear with me, folks. <laughs> I know what you're all wondering. What happened to Charles Manson after facilitating all of these horrible events, after being the guiding hand of racism, after killing so many people, whatever happened to him? He spent the rest of his miserable existence in jail. During the time of Manson and his family members' imprisonment, the California Supreme Court actually abolished the death penalty in that state, so instead they were given life. Charles Manson died of a heart attack on November 19th of 2017. He was 83 years old. In the end, I really wonder if Charles Manson did die happily. I know that's a weird thought. In a way, he got what he wanted. He was famous, sure, famous for horrible things, but famous nonetheless. He had a massive following of people who revered and feared him. He had a mass media storm and one of the most famous trials in history, all because of his influence. People were either captivated or scared. And people are still talking about him to this day. I mean, we are right now. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I hope you enjoyed the miniseries. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Bazaar. Be sure to like, review, and share us on any social media platform you'd like. It's so important to spread the word. Anything counts, whether it's following us on social media, catching up on the older episodes, or giving us a five-star review. Whatever you can do, I would really appreciate it. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. Peace out, nerds.